For those of you who maybe haven't been here for the whole series, that's just a little slide to help us remember what's happening in the book of Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel is a fellow who, with a whole bunch of the nation of Israel, got carried off from Jerusalem, which is where most of the Bible stuff happens. Uh, That's where the temple is. That's where God's people are. This King Nebuchadnezzar came along, an evil, tough king, and he took all the people of Israel and he carried them off to to Babylon. And remember, they'd they'd been in Babylon five years when uh, God comes to Ezekiel with the message of the book of Ezekiel. So all the stuff we're hearing uh, in the book of Ezekiel is written to the guys who are down in Babylon. Uh, But today, in today's passage in chapter 21, Ezekiel actually has a message for the uh, Israelites back in Jerusalem. So that's what's going on. So open your Bibles to Ezekiel 21. In 1912, on Sunday, April 14th, at 11.40, 20 minutes to midnight, can anyone tell me what happened? 1912, April 14, absolutely, the Titanic hit an iceberg. Two hours and 40 minutes later, the Titanic broke in half and sank. 706 people survived, 1,517 died. It was one of the worst peacetime boating disasters in history. And yet, two days earlier, as they were boarding the Titanic, there couldn't have been more optimism, could there? It was the most luxurious ship available. It had a swimming pool, a gym, a library, a squash court, a French restaurant. Not just luxurious, it was well-engineered. Shipbuilder magazine described it as practically unsinkable. In fact, so confident were the people who uh, owned the Titanic that they decided only to carry half the lifeboats on board because to double up the lifeboats uh, ruined the nice um, look of the ship. So confident were they that it wouldn't sink. Over 2,000 people on board, totally oblivious to what would happen to them in two days' time. No warnings, no hints of danger, nothing but high hopes, big dreams, complete trust in the Titanic. But as it would turn out, misplace trust. Well, in Ezekiel's time, uh, in the book of Ezekiel, in the time of Israel, the nation of Israel are awaiting a disaster that is infinitely greater than the Titanic disaster. The nation of Israel are awaiting the judgment of God. And yet, even though they've been warned about it, their confidence levels are sky high. After all Ezekiel's warnings, Israel just don't get it. They're thinking, we're God's people, God's on our side, Uh, the temple's still standing in Jerusalem, God's going to take us back there and everything is going to be okay. And so what happens in these chapters of Ezekiel 21, 22 through to 24, God is going to systematically strip Israel of her pathetic hopes. Have you ever chased a mouse around the shed? Um, you know, when it know, knows it's being chased and the mouse will just hide anywhere it can find. It goes behind the lawnmower. You take the lawnmower outside and it runs to the wheelie bin. And so you move the wheelie bin and the mouse runs behind the shoe. And eventually, you remove everything out of the garage and there's nowhere left for it to hide. And bang, down comes the shovel. Now, in chapter 21, 
Don't tell me you've never done that. Please. <laughs> in chapter 21, one object at a time, God is removing Israel's false hopes so that she's got nowhere to hide. God has his sword unsheathed and he's ready to strike the nation of Israel. Now, um, don't make comparisons with today's nation of Israel. This is a different time. This is talking about God's people back then in the Old Testament. And the first obstacle that the nation of Israel back then trusted that God is going to remove is their king. Turn with me to Ezekiel 21 verse 7. So Ezekiel 21, verse 7, um, we'll start at verse 6. Therefore groan, son of man, groan before them with broken heart and bitter grief. And when they ask you, why are you groaning? You shall say, because of the news that is coming. Every heart will melt and every hand go limp. Every spirit will become faint. Every knee will become as weak as water. It is coming. It will surely take place, declares the sovereign Lord. See, God is going to humble his people. Verse 8, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy and say, this is what the Lord says, a sword, a sword, sharpened and polished, sharpened for the slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. And here's the bit, here's where God addresses um, Israel's king. Shall we rejoice in the scepter of my son Judah? The sword despises every such stick. What's the stick they're talking about there? Well, uh, in um, the nation of Israel, the king, the ruler, would have a staff that he'd rule with, the sign of his authority. And there's a promise back in Genesis 49 that the scepter, the ruler's staff, won't depart from the tribe of Judah until he comes to whom it belongs. In other words, they're looking forward to a great king. And so the Israelites, you can imagine them saying, God can't destroy us. Uh, he's made a promise that we're going to have the ruler's staff forever. Things may be bad in Babylon, but God's going to get us back in Jerusalem and we're going to have our king again. And uh, well, God says here of their precious, precious ruler's staff, shall we rejoice in the scepter of my son Judah? The sword despises every such stick. In other words, when the sword of King Nebuchadnezzar comes through and wipes out Jerusalem, it's not going to stop for a ruler's staff. It's just going to keep going. Israel's hopes in their king are false hopes because their king is going to be cut down by the sword of God. Mind you, um, God's not going back on his promises back in Genesis um, about the one whom the staff is coming to because just skim ahead to Exodus 21, uh, sorry, Ezekiel 21 verse 26. Just skim ahead. It's only over the page. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Take off the turban, remove the crown. In other words, get rid of your king. It will not be as it was. The lowly will be exalted and the exalted will be brought low. A ruin, a ruin, I will make it a ruin. It will not be restored until he comes to whom it rightfully belongs. To him I will give it. In other words, in Ezekiel's day, God is going to remove the king from Israel. But there's going to be a king coming in the future. Well, Ezekiel's future, our past, because it was Jesus. And this king is the one to whom God will give the crown. He'll give the rod. He's the one who will rule. But until that time, until that king um, comes, 
God is going to remove the king from the nation of Israel. So strike one, God is going to remove Israel's king. Well, that's a blow to her pride, but there's a bigger blow coming. The second shock for Israel is to do with God's sovereignty, God's power, God's um, ruling of the world. See, the Israelites know that God is big and that no pagan king, no matter how bad they are, no matter how strong they are, they're no match for God. I mean, look back at Israel's history. God beat Pharaoh. God beat the kings who were in the promised land, David and Goliath. God beat Goliath. God beat the Assyrian king who was just about to knock out um, Jerusalem a few years earlier. So Israel knows that God can beat King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. But to trust in God's sovereignty, that he will beat King Nebuchadnezzar, is a false hope. Because in chapter 21, verse 18, we find out that in this battle, God's not going to strike down King Nebuchadnezzar. God is going to use King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon to come and strike down his people. What could be more devastating than that? Israel are calling out to God to help them from King Nebuchadnezzar. And they find out that God is the one who has sent King Nebuchadnezzar against them. Let's pick up that kind of idea in verse 18. So Ezekiel 21, 18. And we see King Nebuchadnezzar's battle plans unfolding. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Mark out two roads for the sword of the king of Babylon to take, both starting from the same country. The same country, of course, is Babylon. Make a signpost where the road branches off to the city. Mark out one road for the sword to come against Rabbah of the Ammonites and another against Judah and fortify Jerusalem. In other words, King Nebuchadnezzar and his army are marching down that road from Babylon and they're looking for a nation to kill. And they come to a fork in the road. The fork's not on that map. But one side of the fork goes to the Ammonites. They're the enemies of God's people. And the other fork goes straight to Jerusalem. And to decide which way to go, King Nebuchadnezzar, it says he seeks an omen. He casts lots. He shakes his arrow in the quiver and he draws one out like a lucky dip to see which way to go. It says he looks at the lines in a dead liver. So cut open a sheet, look at the liver, look at the lines on it. It's a bit like palm reading, uh, airy-fairy stuff. A very unstrategic and unscientific for a way for a king to make a decision. He's consulting his idols, false gods. But that's what he does. And yet, there couldn't be an easier battle for God to win, could there? All God has to do, if he wants to save Israel, is make whatever arrow comes out first that hasn't got Israel's name on it, if you like. But Ezekiel says, the lot will fall for Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Israel. Look at 21. For the king of Babylon will stop at the fork in the road, at the junction of the two roads, to seek an omen. He will cast lots with arrows. He will consult his idols. He will examine the liver. Into his right hand will come the lot for Jerusalem, where he is to set up battering rams, to give the command to slaughter, to sound the battle cry, to set battering rams against the gates, to build a ramp and to erect siege works. It will seem like a false omen 
to those who have sworn allegiance to him. That's, that's the um, Israelites who are um, being, trying to be loyal to Nebuchadnezzar and subdue him. But he will remind them of their guilt and take them captive. See, the arrows and the liver readings, the tarot cards, whatever it is, they lead Nebuchadnezzar to Israel. And Israel think it's, it's all wrong. It's a false omen. It's the wrong decision. He's, he's looking at the wrong gods. So much for God's sovereignty. Except, look at what God says in the very next verse. Verse 24. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You notice right there, Ezekiel uses the, frame, the name of God, which he so often uses in this book, the sovereign Lord. See, the Lord who is king of the whole world. Verse 24, this, therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you people have brought to mind your guilt by your open rebellion, revealing your sins in all that you do, because you've done this, you will be taken captive. No decision is outside the sovereign will of God. Even if it's King Nebuchadnezzar consulting his idols and his liver. No decision is outside of God's control. Now that is a wonderful comfort when God is on your side, isn't it? But when God is against you, well, nothing could be more terrifying. God has set himself against Israel, he's angry with them, and he is going to use even Nebuchadnezzar against them. See, Israel's hopes are being demolished like a cheap Hollywood set. Their king, their sovereignty of God. Well, next, God turns to Israel's biggest source of pride, Jerusalem itself. Um, turn down to Ezekiel 24. Ezekiel 22 is all about Jerusalem. You might like to read it. Ezekiel 23 is all about Jerusalem. But we're going to pick it up in 24 verse 15 because there there's a really clear illustration. I wonder if God was shaking you up and removing things that you take pride in, that you put before God. I wonder what he'd take away. Well, for Israel, it's going to be Jerusalem. And to illustrate what's happening, God uses Ezekiel's own wife. Look at verse 15 of Ezekiel 24. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, with one blow, I'm about to take away from you the delight of your eyes. Okay, this is not talking to the nation of Israel. This is talking to Ezekiel. I wonder what his delight is. God says, yet do not lament or weep or shed any tears. Groan quietly. Do not mourn for the dead. Verse 18, so I spoke to the people in the morning and in the evening, my wife died. The next morning, I did as I had commanded. God takes from Ezekiel the thing that is most precious to him, that is his wife. Now notice that every time something bad happens, it's not a direct judgment of God on the person because Ezekiel here is a good, a good fellow. He loves God. Ezekiel's not the one here who needs to be taught the lesson. But God doesn't take away Ezekiel's wife to teach Ezekiel a lesson. God takes away Ezekiel's wife to teach Israel a lesson. And um, we see what the lesson is down in verse 18. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and in the evening, my wife died. 
The next morning I did as I had been commanded. And this is what he was commanded, verse 20. I said to them, the word of the Lord came to me. Say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I'm about to desecrate my sanctuary, the stronghold in which you take pride, the delight of your eyes, the object of your affection. Verse 25, and you, son of man, on the day I take away their stronghold, their joy, their glory, the delight of their eyes, their heart's desire, and their sons and daughters as well, on that day a fugitive will come to tell you the news. See, God's taking away Ezekiel's wife, the most precious thing to Ezekiel, as a sign that that's exactly what he's going to do to the nation of Israel. He's going to take away what's most precious to them, which was their temple. And just like Ezekiel was told, don't have a funeral for your wife, don't cry, well, the nation of Israel won't cry. Not because they decide not to, but because they'll be so sad, they'll be just able to groan, that's all. I wonder what it is um, for you that you most value. And I wonder what it would be like to have that taken away. Well, here we find out that God is so committed to his people, hear this clearly, that he is prepared to take away the thing, whatever it needs to be, that's getting in the way of them following him. Even if it's the thing they most value. God is prepared to remove the most precious thing from his people, even when it's a good thing, if it will bring him glory. And so here... Jerusalem, the city that he gave his people, the center of their worship and everything, God's going to destroy it. I wonder how Israel will respond when God delivers his final blow, his knockout punch. Let's have a look. Um, skip all the way over to Ezekiel 33 because that's where the news comes. While we're going, let's do a survey. Who thinks third strike uh, at the heart of what Israel most love that they'll fall down and repent and give up and turn back to God. Hands up. I thought they would. I mean, hands up who um, thinks that they're just going to keep being stubborn. And, um, gee, well, yes. Let's have a look, shall we? Chapter 33, verse 21. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month of the fifth day, a man who'd escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has fallen. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon has marched to Jerusalem and Jerusalem has fallen. It's a, it's a pile of rubble. And I don't know how long it would have taken for the messenger to get from Jerusalem back to Babylon, but it's a thousand miles, so it would have taken a while. And the messenger's just arrived. The city has fallen. Now, the evening before the man arrived... The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he opened my mouth before the man came to me in the morning, so my mouth was opened and I was no longer silent. Now here we go, here's the response of the people in Jerusalem. Verse 23, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, the people living in those ruins in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one man. Yet he possessed the land, but we are many. Surely the land has been given to us as our possession. Can you see what's happening here? Israel are still holding on. 
Their king is gone. The Babylonians have been through. Jerusalem is God, gone. But they're saying, we've still got the land. Surely this is a sign of God's blessing. Surely God is still with us. We don't need to repent. They can't face the possibility that they might be wrong. That they might need to turn back to God. The Titanic has almost sunk and they're still just trying to pretend that everything is okay. Well, God will remove this last hope too. Verse 28. I will make the land a desolate waste and her proud strength will come to an end. God's people are clinging on to anything that they can to hold on to their pride, but God will humble them. Just like he humbled Pharaoh, blow by blow, until Pharaoh had no other choice, God will humble his people. Why? Because he wants to bless them. God actually has plans for his people when they turn back to him that he's going to shower them with blessings more than they can imagine. But they won't turn back to him. And as we read on uh, in, in the rest of Ezekiel, we're going to look at it over the rest of term, we're going to see some of the wonderful promises that God has in store for his people. Promises that are fulfilled when Jesus comes. But what we see here is that before God gives them those promises... He wants to humble them so they'll learn to trust in him. And I think what we're seeing here is the tragedy of human sin. That's in all of us, really. Human confidence. Human pride. The foolishness of thinking that we can ignore God and get away with it. The inability to admit that we're in the wrong. The arrogance to think that we can save ourselves, that we're good enough. The foolishness of thinking that we can be okay without God. We can just hide behind whatever things make us feel secure. And Jesus calls us to admit that we're in the wrong and to admit that there's nothing we can bring to him to contribute to our salvation. We've got to let go of it all and trust only in Jesus. Come with me to Philippians 3 because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul talks about. So in the New Testament, after Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, somewhere in there, just near the end. In Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul, who was once an Israelite, he thought he was a good bloke, he trusted in all that stuff, looks back on what happened when he met Jesus and what happened to all those false hopes of his. Philippians 3, and we'll pick it up in verse 4. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, this is Paul talking about um, what a good Israelite he was, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, in other words, he kept the law, as for zeal, persecuting the church, in other words, he was such a good Jew, he would go around persecuting Christians because they were seen uh, as enemies of, of um, Jesus was seen as a, um, 
or the Jews didn't like him. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. In other words, Paul is a good fellow. But look at verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Down towards the end of verse 8. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. See, God doesn't want us to try and sit here and be good people and earn our way into his favour. He wants to trust in Jesus who's died for us and if we just repent and ask him, he'll forgive us. And it's so easy, isn't it, to sit here and just almost laugh at the nation of Israel and their stubbornness. God is just removing all the things that they pride in and still they don't get it. But let's not be too quick to point the finger because we are staring down the barrel of God's judgment. When Jesus returns, he'll judge again. And yet how many people today think they're okay? How many people today look for other things to find comfort in? Hide behind anything that makes them feel safe. I'm ahead on my mortgage. Life is good. I'm comfortable. Got a superannuation fund ready to mature. I'm proud of it. Life is good. The star signs are telling me everything's okay. Religion makes me feel good. I get a weekly dose of church and it makes me feel safe. Let's not be too quick to point the finger at Israel because it's a trap for us, even followers of Jesus, to be seduced by our human pride into trusting other things instead of Jesus. If I think God loves me because I'm a good person, because I've been faithful to my wife, because I pray each day, because I'm a minister, because I gave up my job as an engineer to, to be a minister, because I've sacrificed things for the sake of the gospel, if I think God loves me because I give my money away to support people, because I work hard for Jesus, if that's what I think, I'm a Pharisee. I'm no different to the Israelites. They're the kind of false hopes that God wants to remove, the hopes that we think we're good. We need to come to God with nothing. We trust in Jesus and that's it, nothing else. That's all we need. That will never fail us. So what about you? You clinging on to anything? Where's your source of security? Are you just holding on to the wonderful promises of Jesus? What happens when God comes and takes away something that you trust in? What happens when God takes that away from you? Do you throw yourself on Jesus? Or do you try and find something else to hide behind? Let's learn from the lessons of Israel. Let's give up our false hopes, whatever they are. And let's cling only to Jesus. Let's pray.